0: You're listening to the Slice of MIT Podcast, a production of the MIT Alumni Association.
1: This is the MIT Alumni Books Podcast, and I'm Joe McGonigal. Rob Wesson, class of 66, is the author of Darwin's First Theory, published in April 2017 by Pegasus Books. For non-scientists, I'll say that the book is a very accessible page-turner, looking into Darwin's first love, geology, and its influence on the arguments he would make about biology and evolution later on in life. Wesson is a Course 12 graduate and scientist emeritus with the USGS Geologic Hazard Science Center in Golden, Colorado. Well, Rob, thanks for patching in to talk about this book. Congratulations. It's a fantastic read. Tell me what inspired it.
0: Well, a whole bunch of different things, Joe. After spending my career writing scientific papers and bureaucratic memos and so on, I really wanted to try my hand at a different kind of writing. I wanted to try and outreach beyond the scientific community see if I could do something that tried to explain a little bit of what scientists do and how they think, and especially geological scientists, because we have a little different way of thinking than a lot of other people. I was drawn to the story of Charles Darwin, first of all, because I didn't realize before I 20 years ago, first read the the Beagle that Darwin had actually been a geologist. I always considered him a biologist. On learning he was a geologist and learning about how he thought about things, I was just fascinated by his thought process. He was just a brilliant observer. Once I put these two ideas together, I wanted to write something about how scientists think and then learning about Darwin and how he thought, especially about geologic processes. I uh, just leapt to the challenge. The other thing of course is that Darwin is such a, a almost a demigod among scientists and a little bit of an anti-Christ figure uh, at least in some circles. Very interesting person. I thought that would be a draw to uh, interest
1: people in the book. And Darwin is well studied and well chronicled, but you layer onto the book your own intellectual journey with a lot of the terrain Darwin covered and your own research interests.
0: I thought that would also add some interest to it. I wanted to fast-forward the science from Darwin's day into the present and to show that Darwin's contribution continues in geology because of the problems he thought about in terms of geology are still being thought about today. Of course, we've made lots of progress, and some of his ideas have been passed by the wayside, but others are still, still active, and people are still thinking about them.
1: Talk about some of the tools Darwin brought with him on the trip. What, what are the tools? The basic tools of a geologist. You read about these early on in the book.
0: Well, his, his fundamental tool were his eyes. He just observed everything visually. And in terms of actual tools, his his hammer. <laughs> this is Darwin wrote. Uh, geology is a Wonderful science to begin because it all requires is a little hammering and a little thinking, something like that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he, he had a geologic hammer. He had a, a compass, a special kind of compass, that's a compass that's also an uh, inclinometer, so you could measure the strike and dip of rocks, and telescope he could look through, a barometer. And then he was, he was with Fitzroy and uh, officers of the Beagle, and their main job was to make nautical charts. And so they had more elaborate tools for mapping theodolites and uh, sextants. And then Fitzroy, of course, on the Beagle had a whole array of chronometers. So he could measure latitude and longitude by astronomical measurements. In fact, the Beagle made the first round-the-world chain of longitude measurements by a a chronometer.
1: You, You write about the exhaustive search for finding what is Rio's actual longitude. (laughs) Right, exactly. You know, we really didn't totally
0: figure this out with a great deal of accuracy until transatlantic cables. And, of course, now with GPS. But determining longitude has always been, uh, well, up until the modern day,
1: has been a continuing challenge. If you took Darwin into USGS headquarters, what do you think would, would be most shocking?
0: Well, there's so many different things. In Darwin's day, you were walking or riding a horse or sailing in a boat some of the biggest advances in geology have really come from synthesizing a more bird's eye view if you will of of the terrain and of of the, the landscape and the rocks are on it and so beginning with the development of aerial photography early part of the 20th century and then uh, satellite photos and lidar we just have all kinds of different uh, techniques for mapping uh, the terrain. The other tool that Darwin actually had on the beagle was a blowpipe that he could use to melt minerals. And that was one of his fused minerals. That was one of his techniques for identifying them. And, of course, now we have all kinds of things like mass uh, spectrometers and spectroscopes and all sorts of things. So we can analyze the chemical composition of rocks and very detailed matches and we can match rocks by matching the, the chemical signatures chemical composition then of course the one thing that bedeviled Darwin a little bit was the age of the earth and he knew the earth was very old he realized that to create topography through erosion would take a long long time this is one of the main ideas that Darwin championed following Charles Lyle that things hadn't been created all at once they were really the result of ongoing processes. He was comfortable with the idea that the world was the earth was millions of years old, but he could, we didn't have very good proofs and in fact, he got in an argument with uh, Lord Kelvin, the famous physicist from England British physicist, who made calculations of the age of the earth based on the idea that it was an iron sphere and how long and that it had initially been very hot and had cool was cooling off. Darwin didn't believe that either geologic processes or evolution could have occurred in that time period. So that w- it was a problem from Darwin. But any, in any case, now with the advanced chemical techniques and understanding of radioactivity, using a variety of different methods, I think that would be very satisfying to Darwin that uh, we've demonstrated that the Earth is something like 4.6 billion years old and there is plenty of time for evolution and for the development of uh geologic structures and terrain and so on.
1: The book's title, Darwin's First Theory, if we can tease it out a little bit, he's seeking to answer the question behind the seismic plates, right?
0: At, At Darwin's time, they had two ideas. One is Lyle had thought that the continents must have been places where the crust of the earth was rising and the ocean basins were places where the crust of the earth was sinking, Darwin basically incorporated that thought into his processes. And the second is that most geologists at the time had the idea that mountains had been formed catastrophically by some remote period in the past. So when Darwin got going uh, on the Beagle, he really had not before been exposed to Lyle's ideas. What training he'd had in geology was kind of more from this catastrophic school As he was on the Beagle, Fitzroy presented him with the first volume of Lyle's Principles of Geology, and Darwin quickly came around to the idea that Lyle was quite right. And so Patagonia, uh, especially on the eastern coast of uh, Patagonia, which is now Argentina, he found a sequence of terraces that he interpreted as reflecting the gradual uplift of South America. These terraces were basically shorelines formed when the continent was lower relative to sea level. As the continent rose up, it formed successively lower uh, terraces. And then he, he saw the same thing in Chile and in the Andes. Of course, this is, Darwin wasn't certainly the only one, or, nor the first one to realize this, but he found shallow water fossils at 14,000 feet or so in the Andes. So it was clear that things had gone up. The question that Darwin faced was, how and why did these uplifts occur? And was there evidence? What was the evidence that was actually going on today? Well, earthquakes provided a, a possibility. Before he even got to the South Pacific, he had turned this idea around and realized he realized that corals only grow at very shallow water, shallow depths in the water. So therefore, if you had a big thickness of coral, it meant that the island or whatever the, the coral reef had been sinking and the coral had to gradually grow up this uh developed into his theory of how the coral islands were formed in the south pacific and indeed in the indian ocean and around the world so he had his tectonic ideas basically in a way it was a proof that the continents had been in fact rising and the seafloor had been sinking What Darwin didn't have at that time, nor did anyone, was that continents and, in fact, the crust of the Earth had been moving around laterally on the surface of the Earth. And this was what really eventually led to the idea of continental drift and seafloor spreading and plate tectonics.
1: And and talk about some of the places you visited where uh, Darwin collected this proof.
0: I went to the, the eastern Patagonia and... One of the interesting things we did with an individual from the University of Washington, David Catling, we kayaked down the Santa Cruz River in Patagonia. And this river basically flows from the Andes to the east across Patagonia and empties into the Atlantic. Darwin and Fitzroy and a good chunk of the crew of the Beagle pulled whale boats. They had three of these whale boats they initially tried to sail and then paddle up the river, but... The current was too strong, so they end up dragging these whaleboats by a rope. And they went a couple hundred miles up this river, hoping to get to the Andes, but they couldn't quite make it. They ran out of food and time. And this area is pretty far south. And very dry terrain. Darwin in- interpreted the rocks as being evidence for this region having been below sea level relatively recently, and Santa Cruz River was kind of a channel, much like the Straits of Magellan or the Beagle Channel further south. It turned out that one of the other geologic problems that confounded Darwin a little bit was Connell glaciation, which just as he was actually on this trip up the Santa Cruz River, Agassiz and Carpentier in Switzerland were coming up with the ideas about continental glaciation, which Darwin was dismissive about initially. But anyway, these deposits actually turned out to be glacial deposits, and so Darwin was a little bit off base on that. So that was one of the interesting places. But one of the, the place that most influenced me, actually, was an island off the coast of Chile, just south of Concepcion, called Isla Santa Maria. Darwin and Fitzroy felt the earthquake in 1835 when they were in the port of Valdivia, which is a couple hundred miles south. And then they proceeded north to Concepcion, and the place was uh, completely wrecked by the earthquake. The adjacent port city of Talcahuano had been destroyed by the tsunami. At that time, the beagle had only one anchor left. You need to have an anchor for sure. So Fitzroy took the beagle up to Valparaiso, to get some more anchors, and that's when Darwin jumped off the ship. And when they'd been at at Concepcion initially, they'd seen some dead shellfish and some other indications that there might have been some uplift of the coast in the 1835 earthquake. But when Fitzroy went to Isla Santa Maria, he realized that there was something like two-and-a-half to three meters of uplift on this island. There were these uh, areas on rocky flats— Uh, that had been before the earthquake, most likely below low tide line, judging by the the shellfish and so on that were there. But these had been uplifted, and when Fitzroy got there six weeks after the earthquake, they were stinking and dying and stinking, and he described the stench as being abominable. When I first got involved in this, thinking about this, following their course, I really wanted to go to this island, and so the first time I went to Chile, I I went to this place that Fitzroy described at the north end of the island, and there was no rocky platform above the waterline at that point. I realized that either the rocky platform that Fitzroy described had been eroded away, or the island had subsided, and Darwin had used this evidence of that Pitt collected at Isla Santa Maria as a true cause or a cause of vera. This was something that you could really see that demonstrated the uplift of the continents and islands. And after I uh, saw this, I thought, well, you know, what could we Is there any way we could see what happened? And it, it turned out that I was able to find in the basement of the Library of Congress a, a chart that the Beagle officers had made of uh, Isla Santa Maria, and especially of an adjacent bay that's pretty shallow. It's about eight meters deep. And they had sounded in this bay. And so on this chart were all these soundings describing how deep the water was. So a Chilean colleague and I came up with the idea that we should just go out there with a little echo sounder and a GPS and see if we could redo the survey of the Beagle and see if the water was the same depth in 2010, as it turned out, as it was in 1835 after the earthquake. And when we did this in January of 2010, it turned out that the water was on average about a meter and a half deeper in January 2010 than in April 1835. So it seemed pretty clear that the island had subsided. Then six weeks after we were there, there was a magnitude 8.8 earthquake, and sure enough, the island popped up again. This time it only went up about a meter and a half, but you could see it. For me, that was just the most amazing, I mean, it was a sad earthquake because there was a lot of uh, death and destruction from the tsunami in 2010. But from a scientific point of view, it was just amazing.
1: And you and include some, some figures, photos of the Puerto Inglés on Santa Maria.
0: In the book, there's photos taken by my colleague Daniel Melnick, who is the guy who we I worked with on the survey. You see all the sea urchins and kelp and and now actually in the in the years since two thousand ten this rocky platform has been covered with sand and it's a beach is slowly uh, forming. So it's really interesting example of how you can see the the cycle of elastic strain accumulation and release and, and what its expression is in the natural environment.
1: We might as well talk a little bit about evolution while we're talking about Darwin. I I found some cool historical reference to William Barton Rogers, the founder of MIT, having debates about Charles Darwin with with Agassiz. You know, Harvard versus MIT before MIT even existed. Tell me what you've learned about both academics, academic thinkers, and the public's thoughts on Darwin and evolution.
0: Well, this is actually a fascinating story. Darwin was. Kind of on the wrong side of the glacial debate, and Agassiz was mostly on the right side. Darwin eventually came around to uh, accepting the idea of first glaciers high in Wales and in Scotland. In contrast, Agassiz hated the idea of evolution. Of course, William Barton Rogers, and he ha- also had a brother who was also a geologist who ended up in the UK somewhere. So William Barton Rogers was, uh, their specialty was the Appalachian Mountains, actually, and they were trying to explain the Belichians before he you know, devoted his full time to uh, getting MIT going. When a lot of people think about evolution, they're thinking about it as a biological problem, which is totally true, but it was also a big problem for the geologists in that time. They realized that the older the rocks, the simpler the forms of life. These forms of life got more complicated as time went on. So they needed to explain that, and that was one of the motivations that Darwin had to think about species from a geologic point of view. Initially, there was a lot of opposition to the idea in uh, England, but in England, this got worked out pretty well. But in the U.S. particularly, we still have a pretty significant fraction of our population that chooses not to accept the data and arguments and the analysis that leads toward evolution. In the book, I actually describe a discussion I had with a person with an unusual point of view, and that is a creationist geologist who continues to believe that the world is 6,000 years old. And as far as I can understand, the arguments that they make for this is that the rate of decay of radioactive isotopes maybe steady during normal times, but it was not steady during the seven days of creation nor during Noah's great flood. So it's interesting to try and understand why people can be totally comfortable with using an iPhone that is based on physics that involves quantum mechanics, and they go to radiologists and use physics that's based on understanding of radioactive decay and so on. But then when it comes to thinking about the age of the earth, they, they reject these this same science. And that's honestly a little troubling to me. One of the best science writers today, David Quammen, wrote in one of his books that faith comforts, but data persuade. I'm personally comfortable with the idea of people having faith that meets spiritual needs. I think that's terrific. And in many ways it helps humans get along together. But it troubles me that they have this disconnect between their uses of science and their acceptance of its consequences.
1: Well, I think nobody can argue that you, you haven't done due diligence in this book. Tell me, um, what else are you reading right now?
0: I wrote about it in the book, just briefly, but I had to throw a lot of it out, about the expedition, the French expedition, uh, expedition to South America in the 1740s when they were trying to measure the shape of the Earth. And there was this big debate. Newton had come up with the idea that, well, based on gravity and the rotation of the Earth, that the Earth should be a prolate spheroid. That is a sphere that's a little bit pushed down from the top. Oh, I said it wrong. The Earth is an oblate spheroid, but they thought it was prolate, which is more football-shaped. And so the this expedition went to south america to try and measure the length on the surface of a degree of latitude if it is a oblate spheroid then that that distance would get larger as you move to the poles and if it was prolate or football shaped it would go the other way so anyway this expedition ended up taking about 10 years and people got murdered and people got married and there's two really good books about it. One is called uh, The Major of the Earth, and the other is called The Mapmaker's Wife, I think. And I'm reading The Mapmaker's Wife now, and then and then I'm staying with the idea of whether I could try and do another book. And so I'm reading about sea level and early man, Neolithic man, how people were influenced by changes in sea level and changes of climate over the last 20,000 years.
1: Rob Wesson is the author of Darwin's First Theory. Uh, published this spring by Pegasus Books. You can find it online or at your favorite local bookstore. And Rob, thanks for tuning in and talking about the book.
0: Well, you're very welcome, Joel.